a heo goes ahead of the cart, probably sort of guiding the oxen, and uh, Azza is standing behind. And then, of course, the bit that, um, you know, makes us all uh, gulp uh, sort of happens. Um, Ahio was walking in front, it says, and then David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might uh, before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nashon, Azza reached out, took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And God's anger burned against Azza because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. Oftentimes, the most difficult questions require a more experienced perspective to truly arrive at an answer. Today's guest, Dr. Wolfgang Stefani, is a man of vast experience. He was awarded his PhD in religious education from Andrews University in Michigan, and is currently employed as a pastor in the greater Brisbane area of Queensland, Australia. He's probably best known for his work in the field of music, however, having taught church music, hymnology, and philosophy of music at both the graduate and the undergraduate level as well as basically holding every single position within a local church at one point or another in his life. Now, when you couple all of that with the fact that he probably has the coolest name I have ever heard, I think you'll agree that we're in for a real treat in this episode. So we decided to go for one of the juggernauts this time. Why did God kill Uzzah? Spoiler alert, Uzza dies, but you knew that. What you're probably wondering is why? Why, God? Well, let's have a look, shall we? Our story today begins in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's all about the Ark of the Covenant. God tasked Moses and Bezalel with assembling a sanctuary, a lesson book, if you will, a map of the plan of salvation. The temple within was designed with two rooms, a holy place and beyond the veil, a most holy place. Now within the most holy place, a room which the high priest would only enter into on the day of atonement, lay the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the very throne of God. Now, this Ark was not in itself God. And unbeknownst to the Philistines, it had no special power in and of itself. But that didn't stop them from looting it when the Israelites presumptuously brought it into battle with them. You see, Israel were defeated and the Philistines head away with the symbol of the power of God carefully in tow. But as you'll see, good intentions only go so far. 
they decide, well, we better put it in a place that's sort of respectful. Right. And so they take it to the Temple of Dagon. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, you read the fascinating story there in, um, in Chapter 5 mm-hmm. where uh, they leave the ark right next to this image. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, of course, the image is face down right. in front of the ark. They sort of think, well, it's just a matter of chance. Yep. And so they do it another night. But this time, hands break off and, yep. and various other things. And they say, uh-oh, <laughs> this, this is no good. Dangerous. <laughs> this yeah. is dangerous. <clears throat> so they want to get rid of it. I guess it gets to the point where the Philistines are like, okay, maybe capturing this thing wasn't the best idea. Yeah. And so now they try and come up with a plan to, to send it back. Yes, having sent it to a number of different cities, uh, first of all, over a course of seven months, mm-hmm. they eventually decide we need to do something. Right. And they call all the intelligence who are in and uh, the priesthood and their own religious uh, circles. And they say, look, what are we going to do? And they suggest a plan. They put this, uh, put the ark on a, uh, on a cart, um, get two cows that have just had calves, mm-hmm. take the calves away, um, sort of put them into a pen, and uh, then send or release the cows. And if they don't go anywhere specific, then they sort of feel, okay, well, maybe the whole thing was just a matter of chance. Mm-hmm. But if these cows start pulling this um, this ark straight back to Jeru- uh, to uh, Israel, then those then they um, could know that this indeed um, all the things that had been happening, including mm-hmm. sickness, including all sorts of things, uh, were actually the intervention of the God of Israel. Right. If you didn't have enough <coughs> proof already that this thing was a source of power than you do now as you see those cows walking up those hills back to Israel. And the interesting thing is, of course, they made special little uh, um, symbols of the diseases, the tumours that had Mm -hmm. developed among Mm -hmm. the people. And they made them in gold as an offering to the God of uh, Israel and put them in a little little box there beside the ark. You, You have to kind of imagine in your mind, you know, being in Israel's camp, and just seeing <laughs> from a distance. You know, if it's a nice day, you see the glare of the gold coming and then eventually you see two cows <laughs> bringing back, you know, your symbol of hope into the camp. The Bible does tell us that they were actually engaged in harvest. Mm-hmm. And my hunch is that they were wanting to get the best out of the day mm-hmm. and so that they were flat out trying to uh, um, uh, to just harvest the grain and uh, perhaps they didn't see it until it actually turned up. Mm. But then, what a wow moment. Yeah. <laughs> there it is in all its glory. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> that would have been a, uh, an amazing thing. And, of course, they come straight over. Mm-hmm. The Philistines, who've been watching very closely along the way, they sort of say, hmm. And um, the uh, people at Beth Shemesh, they show that they know what ought to be done. Mm. Let me read a, just a, a point here from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. <clears throat> and I think it's uh, verse 15. It says, The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the golden objects and placed them on a large rock. Mm. So in other words, the Israelites had an idea of what they ought to be doing with this particular uh, piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. They had respect for it. 
and, um, and so on. And they actually asked Levites to please pull it down off right. the cart. So either they know what they're doing or, or this is the most random thing ever to call that group of people that are known for this work to get involved. And for the rest of the story, Dean, I think that that ends up being very important. It shows mm-hmm. that they are not totally ignorant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When the tabernacle had been made, Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and he wanted to um, have a consecration service and the leaders of Israel were to bring gifts mm-hmm. and what they brought were actually carts. Mm-hmm to carry all the temple um, paraphernalia. Right. And Moses, it says that they brought their gifts before the Lord, cut, uh, covered six covered carts and 12 oxen, an oxen from each leader and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. And so then God asks Moses and says, okay, accept these from them. And he then gives them out Mm -hmm. to the different um, um, parts of the family that is going to look after all of the things that have to do with the tabernacle. All for the poles and for the curtains and for, for all of that sort of stuff and so on. But then it comes down here and says um, in verse four, or sorry, verse nine, it says, but Moses did not give any, talking about carts, to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. Mm-hmm. So that was how Moses had originally set it up. Now, obviously, this was some years before the situation in Beth Shemesh, Mm -hmm. but they clearly in Beth Shemesh still recognised that Levites needed to handle the ark. Right. So we have an an instance in 1 Samuel chapter 6 where although they do understand that there is something special about this uh, piece of furniture, curiosity (laughs) <laughs> seems to get the better of them. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is amazing. Um, and I, I can imagine, you know, maybe they had a break in the uh, in the harvesting that mm-hmm. they were doing and they sort of uh, come over again and have a look at that, this amazing piece of furniture. And um, uh, some of them sort of say, oh, I wonder what's in it. And the Bible says that eventually some of them plucked up an up and up courage um, where uh, it says that they um, uh, they actually looked inside. They lifted mm-hmm. the lid. And First um, Samuel six and uh, verse nineteen. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting seventy of them to death, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Mm. So they they weren't even sure where, whether anyone would want it right. after this experience. And before this, you know, when we see the ark, you know, and, and the initial instruction that's given, the Levites themselves weren't even allowed to look at the ark. You know, they would have to cover it before it was carried. And, you know, it was it was so uh, indicative of the presence of God. You know, this is where he, he would come, the Shekinah glory in the most holy place of the temple, that they weren't even allowed to look. And here we have these men creeping forward. Not even Levites. Right. 
and they just want to see. I, I wonder what's. And the thing is, they would know what's inside. You'd think so. And so I'm thinking that maybe, maybe there's the curiosity. Like, did the Philistines get to take anything out, or can we just have a look? And and that costs them their life, and that I imagine just sends shockwaves throughout Israel. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that um, back in Numbers chapter 4, it mentions that um, the priests, in other words, the, the sons of Aaron, mm-hmm. they would have to cover all, if they were going to move, if, if Israel was going to move, if they were packing up the, uh, the tabernacle, they would cover it and then the Kohathites mm-hmm. would come and pick it up and put it on their shoulders right. as covered implements mm-hmm. or furnishings. And so after this this whole malarkey happens and 70 men lose their lives, uh, where do they take the ark from that point? Well, uh, if you come back to um, to First Samuel uh, here, it says, so the, the men of, um, well, first of all, maybe I should pick up the last verse of chapter 6, and mm-hmm. they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. So then chapter 7, verse 1 says, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Aminadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So they obviously take it to a particular family. They live up on a hill, so it was obviously a prominent location. But then they also take the... um, Probably as a as a reaction to the fact that um, people touching it and actually being killed, looking inside, they say, "Well, look, we want to consecrate someone to be the guardian." Mm-hmm. And so Eliezer, um, probably the oldest son of Abinadab, right. um, is the one who is given that particular task. Yeah, and so the ark stays in the house of Abinadab for twenty years. Yeah, the Bible actually tells us that uh, a little bit further down here in verse uh, 2 of chapter 7. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. So, um, yeah, Abinadab's family gets to have it around them for quite a while. And you can imagine that over the course of time, um, if not immediately, they realize just how important this thing is. And of course, Abinadab doesn't just have one son. His other son, or one of his other sons, is Uzzah. Yes, Ahio and Uzzah, obviously younger sons than uh, Eliezer. Um, but um, they end up uh, obviously being around. And I mean, 20 years, that's a good portion yeah. of, a, of a lifetime. And, you know, if you're young when it arrives... Um, to have it just always in the house, you would start sort of thinking, well, it's part of the furniture of our house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, we, we move then to a little bit later in the story yep. in 2 Samuel now, yep. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And David is now on the throne and he's like, I think that we need to bring the ark back. I think that it should be in Jerusalem. This is the center of God's people. Let's go get it. Not only that, but they've noticed that Abinadab's house has been blessed. Mm. 
And they say, well, why should just one family get this sort of a blessing? Why shouldn't it be for the nation as a whole? And not only that, but David has tried to set up the tabernacle there in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He's got his own palace there now. Mm -hmm. And so he actually organises 30,000 people. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. Um, He actually organises, chooses 30,000 men in all. He and all his men set out to Bala of Judah to bring um, from them the ark of God, which is called by the name. So that uh, that obviously becomes a big project and it's something that, uh, uh, you know, they must be looking forward to with great anticipation. It's clear that David and his men take this seriously. Organizing 30,000 people is no mean feat. The ark of the covenant is important. It's essentially the throne of God, a symbol of His holiness. But holiness can be a difficult concept to comprehend. And David and his men are carelessly heading towards making a fatal mistake. When in verse 3, obviously they decide that they're going to put the ark of God on a new cart. Right. So clearly, even though they knew about Levites sort of in the background of their minds Mm -hmm. carrying it, but obviously the ark had been brought back to Israel from the Philistine area on a cart. So they say, well, you know, let's do that. And um, uh, I don't know how much distance it was. That was something I didn't specifically look up. But um, they put it on a cart and it doesn't say that the Levites put it on a car. Mm. My, I wouldn't be surprised if um, when they all get to the place where they're going to pick it up, um, they just get some men who yeah. are strong. It's like and moving the grand piano. <laughs> exactly. And they, they put the ark on the car. Mm-hmm. So then how, how do we look at that happening and compare it to the fact that when this happened with the Philistines, there seemed to be no problem with that? That's a good question. Clearly, there is the difference of uh, ignorance versus um, a certain amount of knowledge. Mm -hmm. The Philistines really had no uh, former knowledge of how the ark needed to be handled and so on. And it's a a very good uh, illustration of the text in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. where in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, It tells us that in the time of our ignorance, God winks at. In other Mm -hmm. words, he doesn't hold us responsible for things we don't know. Mm -hmm. But once we do know, he asks all men everywhere to repent. Right. And I suppose the difference between the Philistines and the Israelites is the fact that they, um, the Philistines don't know how to really handle it. They do the best they yeah. can. They are respectful. They get a new cart and so on and so forth. But the Israelites should have known better, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially being led by the king. Yeah. You know, who, um, and particularly if you remember that 20 years before, by not handling the ark correctly, uh, 70 people had died. Right. You sort of think that they would have thought, well, we we better think about the protocols of, you know, how should we do this? I recently took a, started a job where I'm, I'm deaning um, at, at an academy, at Weimar Academy. Um, I've got 12 boys 
in the dorm, living kind of underneath my house, or I guess I'm living above theirs. And you see something similar like this when everyone comes in for the first time, everything is new and there's new rules that are constantly being broken because it's a different kind of life to what they're used to. Um, And so you have to give an element of grace. You have to show mercy. You say, okay, I'll give you time to acclimatize and adjust and get used to how things are here. But there comes a point where you have to say, okay, you've had enough time. You know how we do things here. And so if you're going to continue to slack in these areas, there's, there's going to be, to be consequences. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is the same as what we're seeing here is, is God is like, this is not just a, a, a random thing that I've decided to happen. I've shown you over the course, over decades, how important this thing is. Yeah. And I think it's got to the point now where they just aren't really taking heed to how much emphasis God is putting on this thing. The fascinating thing is that it says that Ahio and Azza end up being the boys who actually accompany this cart and the mm-hmm. oxen. One wonders where Eliezer is right. because he is the one who'd actually been dedicated and consecrated to look after the ark. So his little brothers are just picking it up and going. <laughs> yeah, the little brothers, it's, it would seem, are sort of uh, basically picking up and saying, yeah, oh, we can handle this. We've got it. Um, we've got it under control. And uh, so Ahio goes ahead of the cart, probably sort of guiding the oxen, and uh, Azza is standing behind. And then, of course, the bit that, um, you know, makes us all uh, gulp uh, sort of happens. Um Ahio was walking in front, it says, and then David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might uh, before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nashon, Uzzah reached out, took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled and God's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. A solemn moment, I'm sure. I don't think, I don't think that you can come to any other immediate conclusion other than, oh, that seems a little harsh. For him just to go, because because you you're imagining it in your mind. The the oxen stumbles, the ark. You know, it's about to fall off, and this is this is this great important thing. Wouldn't you reach out and try and protect it, try and stop it, try and keep it from from who knows what's going to happen if it hits the floor? Yes, of course. That's how we uh, how we all think of it when we first read the story. But you know, as I've as I've meditated about this story, I am surprised that not more people died hmm. when they first put this ark on the cart. And if it wasn't Levites who actually put it on the cart, mm-hmm. why doesn't God intervene at that point? Hmm. I mean, there could have been a terrible disaster before they even started taking this cart and taking the ark anywhere. And yet at this particular point, God chooses to intervene. God can intervene at any point, of course. But he chooses to intervene at this point. And 
I believe that there is probably a very, uh, very significant reason. Looking at it from God's point of view, you know, how do you try to help people understand something that is holy, something that really matters? Obviously, 20 years ago, 70 people had died. And 20 years ago isn't a long time. That's exactly right. It's basically just within a generation. Mm -hmm. And I suppose in a sense, uh, you know, when you've got the ark with you in the house, Uzzah sort of, there's a, there's a saying, you know, we have familiarity breeds contempt. Mm. Um, perhaps not contempt in the sense that we sort of then mock, but, you know, we just become cavalier about how we handle things. Right. We've seen it there all the time and so we sort of say, well, you know, I, I know how to deal with this mm. and I don't want it to fall. But then the whole idea of what God had tried to help Israel understand with the protocol that he'd established back in the book of Numbers mm. was actually being lost. Where does God step in and say something? And I suppose God chose in his wisdom to do it at this point. Mm. So essentially, one man loses his life through an act of irreverence so that the entire people can see that God is very particular about how something that represents him is going to be handled. You know, it was even so when the Levites actually carried the ark. They actually had to go through ritual cleansing before they picked the ark up and carried it. And the fascinating thing is here, Uzzah doesn't have any particular preparation. And of course, he's not a Levite, as far as we know. And um, therefore, he's just sort of coming from, uh, you know, what he'd been doing and what he'd been thinking. He hadn't sort of made any mental preparation, no sense of the solemnity of what uh, was really happening here. Mm. Uh, there'd be no repentance or asking for forgiveness and cleansing so that we were actually doing um, the right thing and recognising before God and before the people that this was a special task that we were engaged in. There was none of that. Mm. It was just a matter of, oh, the oxen stumble, so I better hold on to it. And I suppose here God is simply trying to say, we can't, we can't keep going in this way, mm. otherwise we totally lose the sense of what holiness really means. By no means is this an easy question to answer. In fact, I think it's designed to make you ask why, to make you wrestle with the scriptures. If we just give up every time we come to a passage that is difficult to understand, we'll never even come close to understanding God, His character, His love, His holiness. When we're back, we'll see that King David isn't too happy about what's just happened either. But even a king is a student at the feet of the master teacher. Don't go anywhere. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.
A Christian without a Bible is like a soldier without a sword. You can't expect to win the battle like that. So we'd like to introduce you to Humble Lamb Bibles. They make wonderfully crafted premium Bibles filled with cross-references, beautiful annotations, and many more built-in study tools. And catch this, for every Bible they sell, they give another Bible away for free to those that can't afford one. You can get another 10% off your purchase if you use the WTDT promo code when you check out in their store. So visit HumbleLamb.com and get yours now. The idea of questioning God seems absurd. We've been taught to merely accept that God knows best, which He does. But I don't think even God wants us to just stop there as His humble, obedient subjects. I think God wants us to question Him. He wants us to ask why. That's why we even started this podcast. After all, how will you get answers if you're never asking questions? King David wants to know why God has acted the way he has. And the answer for him, as well as the answer for us here today, is found exclusively in the Word of God. So we're given insight here into how David reacts. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8, that David was displeased with what God had done. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like the reader here in the story. He's the one that's watching, that's seen it, and is like, whoa, what's what's that about? Why did you have to do that? And I suppose he also thinks, I was I was only trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Right. What was, what was wrong with my motive? Mm-hmm. In fact, in the New International Version, it says, and David was angry. He mm-hmm. wasn't just displeased. In other words, his, uh, his emotions really start uh, coming in here. Mm-hmm. But not only does he feel um, angry about what God has done, the next verse in verse 9 says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, well, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was having a bit of a moan. He was. And it's interesting how self-pity Mm. now starts to probably arise in the situation. You know, I was only trying to do the right thing. Nothing wrong with what I was doing. It's what God was doing that is not the right thing. And, of course, that becomes an issue of uh, where our pride mm. then sort of becomes the uh, um, uh, the focus. Uh, David sort of uh, feels that he's been doing the right thing. And... Um, Yes, it takes time for that for that to settle. And I mean, the I feel like to many the question will be will be rather valid. Like he was just trying to do something good, you know. He was trying to bring the ark back. He was trying to have the blessing of the Lord upon all the people. And so the 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 natural question that arises in my mind is, well, they're they're being sincere. You know, they're, they're, it's, they're not thinking anything, you know, they're not trying to get their, their own benefit from this. You know, it's not like David is doing it for popularity. They've been singing about him for ages. Isn't that enough? I suppose there are a number of things that are part of this as I, as I have tried to think about it. David, of course, is the king of Israel. Hmm. And as a leader, any leader really ends up being a model hmm. for behavior. 
And if uh, David um, can't uh, actually learn how to do right, uh, how to do what uh, what uh, he needs to do in the right way, well, then the people are not going to be interested in learning that either. Mm. Not only that, but bringing the ark probably would have been on a public road. Remember, Palestine was in the, on the crossroads of yep. the then known world and therefore foreigners passed through regularly and I wouldn't be surprised on a big event like this that there mm-hmm. probably were a lot of onlookers. Yeah. So in many ways they were really modelling how a worship experience or a, um, um, a special God-oriented project was actually being, um, being carried forth. Mm-hmm. Look, the idea that uh, sincerity is important, there is no question the Bible certainly encourages us to be sincere. Mm -hmm. In fact, in Amos chapter 5, God says that um, he wants uh, music that had obviously been done and offerings that had been given totally according to protocol. He wanted those taken away because he didn't want them anymore because they were hypocritical. Mm because the people were not serving him from the heart. So doing the right thing with the wrong motive is actually an abomination before God, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. But here now we sense that people have sort of the right motivation, but they don't do it the right way. Mm. And God has stepped in and has intervened in a way that has made everyone think. As I said before, David took some time. It was three months of cogitation about what had happened Mm -hmm. that finally brought him to a uh, a realisation. And the Bible actually records that realisation. If we come over to 1 Chronicles um, chapter 15, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, In the meantime, having put the ark um, in Obed-Edom's house this time, Mm. that three months ends up being a wonderful time for that family. (laughs) So the blessing of God rests on the family again. And again, David says, we really need to do this, bring bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Mm. So he again sort of says, well, you know, maybe we need to give it another try. But um, if you uh, come down here to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here, maybe even verse 11, it says, David summoned Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and Uriel and Isaiah, Joel and Shemaiah and Eliel and Aminadab the Levites. He said to them, you are the heads of Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves. There's what I was talking Mm -hmm, about before. mm -hmm. In other words, there was preparation that normally needed to be done to be able to do things. And David has gone back and checked. In other words, he's gone back to the Bible. He's checked what really should be the protocol. Mm. And he then sort of says, prepare yourselves and then bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. And then notice, fascinating verse in verse 13, it says, It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time Hmm. that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Hmm. 
So David actually says in so many words that he has learned a lesson. Right, that God is justified in his decision because now they're not going to make the same mistake. The anger that David had and the self-pity has dissipated. And sometimes it takes time. It does, sadly. (laughs) That's quite true. Yeah, there's three months in there for him to kind of get through this and think it through and go back. And again, this is what God would have wanted. Mm-hmm. I've done this, not so you can just be shocked and be like, okay, I don't understand God. I, I have no idea what how he works or what he does or what's his motives. Instead, they're like, okay, if God's done that and we don't understand, we need to go back to the written word that we have and see, okay, let's find out or let's remind ourselves of the conditions that God has given us so that we can have the right motives, but also do the right thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dean. And the fascinating thing is that obviously part of the preparation of David thinking this through in that three months was that he noticed it wasn't just the carrying of the ark Mm. that should have been done differently. Basically, the first time they did it, They were just celebrating and jumping and dancing and using all sorts of instruments and so on. Whereas this time, if you go into the next verse, after he tells us that we didn't inquire of him about how to do it in the the right uh, prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord. But then if you come down to verse 16, David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers to sing joyful songs, Mm. accompanied by musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. Interestingly enough, this is a different list Mm. to what happened the first time. The first time it looked like basically a jam session where everyone was just doing, you know, what they thought was sort of being happy and celebrating. Mm. Now... They are following the protocols that had been established for temple worship. Right. Now it's more solemn. It is actually, and, and this, this to me seem, uh, perhaps highlights the fact that any onlooker would have just seen what they were doing and sort of thought, oh, look, this is a happy celebration. What God really wanted this thing was to be a witness mm. at the same time. And so David realizes now that he uh, that they really need to do this in the same ethos yeah. as worship happens in the temple. And so the whole musical um, surround of the um, the experience and so on ends up being done the way that worship happens in the sanctuary. And they don't use a cot; they carry it on their shoulders. Exactly. So they've learned. They have. And so it gets back. It's successful this time. The right motives align with their right decisions. But then you have to you have to ask, okay, Uzzah lost his life in his rashness. Does he also does he lose his salvation? Like is 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 he done? <laughs> That's probably the most narking question in the back of most people's minds. Mm. Okay, he dies, and we sort of think, perhaps a bit harsh, but we've said, you know, one man dies to save a nation in a sense. Mm. When you look at it from that point of view, it's still a gracious intervention Mm -hmm. of the Lord. I mean, he could have killed a thousand. Yeah. 
Because remember, there were 30,000 mm-hmm. that were there as part of the gathering. But one man dies. And then so we sort of say, well, what, uh, what does that mean for, uh, you know, for us as life? Look, ultimately, we can't really answer that question. Mm. I can only go in my own thinking as I have tried to struggle with this and grapple with it, that um, there are other instances where people did things that they, where they had not repented and um, where things, uh, you know, where people didn't, um, where they were struck down perhaps for things, I think, in our own lives. You know, what happens when a, when a person uh, has uh, just woke, uh, woken up, goes off to work in the morning um, and maybe has been thinking some thoughts that he shouldn't have been thinking, perhaps even said something before he left home uh, in the car, something that uh, wasn't the right thing to say to his children or his wife or, or whatever else, mm-hmm. and then he gets out on the highway and then he has a, a car accident and dies. You know, does that mean, well, sorry, that person's lost? Right. And, uh, you know, you've got exactly the same thing with regard to uh, the thief on the cross mm-hmm. and the story of the crucifixion. There, he and his colleague are actually mocking Jesus But as a result of mocking for several hours and realizing that Jesus does not respond with anger Mm. and uh, with uh, epithets and so on, one of those thieves turns to him and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's obviously received a conviction. And it's fascinating, Jesus actually, where he hadn't said anything much before that, He turns to the thief and he says, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Mm. Now, the fascinating thing is, the thief doesn't die that moment. Yeah. So how could Jesus give him that assurance when he ends up keeping living, perhaps for another day? I think that's a question a lot of people have. You know, is it just the final act of your life that that def- that decides, you know, which direction you're going to go. I don't believe so, Dean. I believe that the way that God looks at things is that he he can read the heart. And I believe that's why he actually says for us not to judge other people's motives and lives. Mm. Because we cannot read as he reads. Mm. He reads the motives over time. And I believe that he knows what the tenor of the direction of how we relate to things ends up being. Mm -hmm. Look at King David himself. You know, what would have happened if he died directly after committing adultery with Bathsheba? Would he have been lost? Mm. It's fascinating. Just a few, few chapters later, it talks about him as being a man after God's own heart. And yet he's committed murder and... He's committed adultery. And the fascinating thing is that once time passed and the Holy Spirit was able to work with David's mind, he did come back and repent and Mm, left on record a wonderful example of how to confess sin Mm -hmm. in Psalm 51. Obviously, God knows that that is how David's response is going to be. 
And I believe that that is why God doesn't write people off. I don't know how it's going to be with us. My hunch is that um, perhaps, you know, if God knows Uzzah well, and uh, if Uzzah had the habit of given more time and so on, he would have um, uh, he would have actually repented and seen. Yeah, actually, I didn't do the right thing there. Maybe we will see him in heaven anyway. Mm. Maybe his death was really something to get Israel to think more carefully about what they needed to do with holy things. Uzzah is more than a lesson book. I certainly don't think that God undervalued his life and saw it as an opportunity to merely teach a lesson. The point, however, is that we must learn through taking heed to what God has done. Uzzah is not merely a lesson, but we still have to ask what can we learn from this? God is a man of his word. And today he calls us to be men and women of his word also. God is love, yes, but God is also holy. And we cannot have one without the other. Now our mistakes, regardless of our motives, are blessings only when they bring us to a place of learning. And sometimes it's the most simple lessons in life that are the most profound. Look, I remember a situation when I was a a child. We had a family that uh, were good friends of our family and uh, they had two boys. And so in holiday times, uh, my mother would sometimes take uh, myself and my sister down to this particular family. They would live near the beach in Australia and we, uh, we would enjoy um, playing together and uh, so on. I remember on this occasion we turned up and in their home. <clears throat> we went straight to the uh, kitchen because it was a little bit cool that morning. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, um, the slow combustion stove was on. They use slow combustion stove not just for cooking, but for water heating and for house heating as yeah. well. And um, <clears throat> my mother just quickly said, Wolfgang, see that? Don't go near it. It's hot, always. Yeah, 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 I said. And off I went to play. About two hours later, I came back into the kitchen to, uh, to ask for a drink. And sure enough, they said, yeah. And so they were getting the drink. But my eyes looked over into the corner and I saw something that I'd never seen the vibrancy of colour like before. It was a glowing red. And I was just drawn to it. I thought, what is this? Mm. Is this the colour of, of this thing? And what, what is it? I wanted to pick it up. I put my little hand out to actually touch it. And, of course, my longest finger actually caught it and it went, I tell you what, I screamed. Mm. It was a red-hot plate because that's where the kettle had just been. And I screamed and uh, so on. And my mother, of course, came over, picked me up, tried to comfort me, put me on a knee and so on. She said, that's why I said don't. The trouble is that in my naivety Mm. and so on, I didn't remember what she'd said. Mm. 
Your focus was elsewhere. My focus was elsewhere, and I'd never seen anything like that, and so on. I mean, <clears throat> yes, it was a difficult way to learn a lesson. I can promise you I've never touched a hot plate since. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's why the University of Hard Knocks is often the way we learn our lessons in life. Mm-hmm. And I suppose in some way, the story of Azza is a little bit like this sort of thing on a grander scale. Mm. The nation learned a lesson. The king learned a lesson that stood them in good stead for the future by this one situation of God's intervention. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on your favorite social media platforms, such as Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at whythedidthat. And we're on YouTube now as well, where you can actually watch this episode as well as listen to it. So make sure to check that out. This show was produced by the supremely talented Paul Keefe and the video editing by Jonathan J.J. Jensen. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane and you're listening to Why They Did That. <laughs>